Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning, and you know what that means. New episode for you. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Tamu Tyra about his recent book, Taking Religion Seriously, Essays in the Discursive Study of Religion, which was published by Brill in 2022. And we had a really interesting conversation about how scholars can use discursive methods in their own research by examining how different social groups or actors use or employ or negotiate the category of religion, and then just discussing generally the usefulness and the relevance of the various methods of the discursive study of religion. But I don't want to give it all away, so let's just dive right in. Today I'm joined by Dr. Temu Tyra, who is a senior lecturer in the study of religion at the University of Helsinki. His work focuses on public discourses on religion, methodology, religion and media, and atheism and non-religion. He is the editor of Atheism in Five Minutes, which was published by Equinox in 2022, and the co-author of Media Portrayals of Religion and the Secular Sacred, which was published in 2013. He has edited special issues for Implicit Religion and Temenos and published extensively in a variety of journals such as Method and Theory in Religion, the Journal of Contemporary Religion, and Religion. He's also the author of four Finnish language monographs for the study of religion. But today we're here to talk about your most recent book, Taking Religion Seriously, Essays on the Discursive Study of Religion, which was published by Brill in 2022. So welcome back to the RSP. It's great to have you. I know you've been a longtime friend of the RSP, and I'm really glad to have you back in our virtual recording studio. Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, I think it was pretty much 10 years ago when I did my first interview with Chris Cotter on, on religion and media. Yeah, that's right. You've been around since since the beginning. So this will this will be old hat for you, right? So to kick things off, can we start by talking about the title of your book, Taking Religion Seriously? This phrase has a variety of meanings and understandings in the field of religious studies, depending on the kind of work that you do, right? So can you tell us what you mean by taking religion seriously and how that works for you for this book? Yeah, uh, it should be highlighted to the listeners that that religion is in quotes in the title. Mm-hmm. So it's not just taking religion seriously, but taking the category of religion seriously. And obviously, many many scholars of religion have heard the phrase "taking religion seriously." It's been used quite often and in many many ways, and and quite often it's been used in in a sort of protective sense that that uh, people shouldn't just uh, think about religion as an object of scientific study, but take religion seriously as religion. For example, Eric Sharp addressed this idea to to Swedish theologian Nathan Söderblom in Sharp's widely read study of our scholarly history. Yes. So that's just one occasion where that phrase is used. And quite often it is used to refer to so-called anti-reductionist approach. Mm -hmm. You can study, let's say, social dimension, historical dimension, psychological dimensions of religion, but you shouldn't reduce religion to any of them. 
So it's been sort of phrase used against reductionism. More recently, people tend to use that phrase when they want to justify that studying religion is important in general, something like the role of religion in world politics or understanding conflicts in different parts of the world. We, we need to take religion seriously. Yeah. So I have less problems with that phrase, but still my way of using that phrase with religion in quotes means something very, very different. So I want to highlight the relevance of reflecting the category of religion itself, not religion as a phenomenon. I use that phrase to indicate that this book is about studying how people negotiate and define religion, what counts as religion for different actors and institutions. In other words, I don't define religion in this book at all. I study how others do the definition. And when I say others, I don't mean simply other scholars, but let's say different actors outside academia and social institutions such as media and, and law or, or nation states, governments. So I want to put the emphasis on thinking about religion as a category rather than religion as a phenomenon. Right. And I think that, you know, something that I completely agree with. And I think that's definitely the, the biggest difference I see from a lot of more popular discourses on how one ought to take religion seriously. So I think this is a great way of sort of framing us and leads me nicely to my next question. So, of course, the subtitle of your book is Essays on the Discursive Study of Religion. So what is, well, knowing that it's not a monolith, right, but what is the discursive study of religion and how in, in your book are you building on or diverging from other methodologies in religious studies? In a very broad sense, when I use the phrase discursive study of religion, I mean almost any kind of approach that operates with the concept of discourse. What is common to, to different types of approaches within that framework is that they all see language use as central to how our world is constituted and constructed and, and what types of relations of power are formed through language use or maintained. And as you said, discursive study of religion is not one monolith. There are several types. Some see it as a study of whatever they define as religion, studied by applying discourse analysis as a method. And I discuss such an approach quite extensively in, in chapter two of the book. But my version of discursive study focuses on what I already talked uh, about, the negotiations concerning what counts as religion. And in this version, I don't define religion myself, but I, I, I discuss other approaches, especially in that chapter two. So that's one of the key differences within discursive framework I highlight in the book. But there are other differences too. For instance, some utilize tools of textually oriented discourse analysis, and some others operate with more Foucauldian approach, the one I call historically oriented approach. I don't know if these terms are the most appropriate ones, but, but I still want to highlight some differences between approaches. And I also discuss different types of options scholars have in doing concrete analysis. The selection of data, for example, relatively small data is typical for discuss analysis or discursive study in general. But nowadays, some do so-called corpus analysis, which operates with very large data sets, but they don't go into details, detailed, detailed linguistic analysis. 
And there are scholars such as Koku von Stukrad, who characterizes discursive study as a research perspective that may utilize many types of qualitative and even quantitative methods. So there's quite a lot of variety, and I hope that at least some of that variety comes through in the book. But I, I'm, I'm quite clear in, in uh, stating what I prefer and what I do in practice in this book, in the case studies that follow this quite long chapter. So in this book, I actually don't spend much time in demarcating the difference between discursive approach and all other approaches. Rather, after describing what should be considered if one wants to do discursive study, I move relatively quickly to demonstrating the way in which I apply some of those tools in case studies. So in that sense, the book is not about detailing what other approaches are missing or lacking, but about providing hopefully interesting and inspirational example of how one can proceed in the field of studying the category of religion rather than studying religion as a phenomenon. So I would leave it to other occasions to, to state more clearly how discursive study of religion differs from other approaches. I do that a little bit, but not, not that much. Well, and I think as, as you mentioned in the book too, one reason I, you said for doing this is, is to just be able to demonstrate the usefulness of this approach for the field not presented as, as something that is rejecting or delegitimizing other methods because they all have their own merit and usefulness to varying extents depending on the type of research that one is doing. And so I think that's also helpful because I, I do think often this approach is almost regarded at base value as being implicitly critical of any other method. Yeah, yeah. And my, my choice is partly strategic. Because in, in many, many occasions, I've met scholars who are potentially interested in discursive study, but they feel that whatever they've been doing before is somehow devalued, or they feel themselves threatened because of some more provocative statements made by scholars. So, so I try to say that let's put those things in brackets for a while and see what kind of interesting things I think we can do with these approaches. And then you can see whether that is somehow relevant to your expertise and, and your areas of interest and, and, and see whether you can apply some of the tools or not. So that's very much, um, maybe it's a question of my personality too, but in many ways, it's a strategic choice. That makes sense. So you say that you're looking at different boundary cases is, is what you refer to your different sort of case studies. What are boundary cases in this sense? What do you mean by this? And, and why are they relevant for the discursive study of religion? And I ask this in part because I know folks who are uh, hesitant or skeptical of discursive approaches in the study of religion seem to find discourse analysis just to be about talking about talking, right? This some something that's somehow overly meta. So what are boundary cases and how, how are they working in the discursive study of religion? I could start uh, from two angles. One angle is that people who do discourse analysis, they can just uh, take, let's say, media discourses on Islam and they go and do discourse analysis. That's fine. Okay. Then some scholars who have paid more attention to the category of religion have been accused of uh, focusing just scholarly definitions scholars criticizing other scholars 
okay, I'm not sure if that's really fair assessment, but yeah. that's what some have argued. So I want to highlight in this book that I don't really do that kind of criticism of scholarly uses of religion that much, at least. It's not the focus. But what I call boundary cases, situations in different areas of society in which the religiosity of groups or practices or symbols are debated and contested. Situations in which different parties articulate what counts as religion and what doesn't. So typically good examples are related to small groups, where groups people don't necessarily understand as religious in the first place. Wiccans, Druids, Jedi Knights, Pastafarians, for example, and so on and so forth. I think that such examples reveal people's and institutions' assumptions concerning religion. That's why I think they are important. Studying such cases is not about focusing on marginal or insignificant groups. It is more like a way to understand how society is organized when it operates with the category of religion. So this is what I would say that this is a topic I'm really interested in. How the society organizes itself when it operates with religion and how people from ordinary citizens to politicians try to make themselves heard or achieve something by utilizing discourses on religion. So I often say somewhat provocatively that if I write about Wiccans or Jedi Knights, I am not really interested in them. I'm, I'm more interested in how, how such groups, when claiming to have a religion and, and, for instance, applying for the status of registered religion or charitable uh, or, or charity uh, on the base of religion, how those processes, especially contentious ones, where like charity commission has to really reflect and articulate carefully what they understand about religion, what, they, what counts as religion. They, they need to go back to the law, what it says, or previous cases, and really reflect, sometimes even change their understanding of what religion is according to them. And those cases reveal something very interesting about how, how power operates in society in relation to the category of religion. I think it was in, in the, when, when Jedi Knights or one of the Jedi groups in, in um, Britain applied for the status of charity, the commission statement began by, by saying that this actually was a very contentious case that this made us reflect carefully what religion is. Yeah, I remember where you noted that because it caught my eye. It really highlights the malleability of that category and how it functions in society. So in thinking about how social groups use the category of religion for different purposes, whether it's to gain access to certain rights or privileges in society or within the nation state, can we... Talk about a specific example where you tease that out a bit. Well, there are different ways to begin. One, one is more like top-down model where you start by looking at how, let's say, government or law in a particular country uh, understands religion and how that conditions how different groups can, can operate. What is included, what is excluded, what, what benefits are given or what resources are allocated on that basis. 
That's one way to begin. Another way is to begin more like bottom-up, starting with a group that is, let's say, in, in many of my case studies I've done, applying for the status of registered religious community or status of charity, for instance, on the base of religion. I think that in most cases you end up talking about same things, but starting point just where it is. In, in these case studies, I've, I've mainly started from bottom-up. I don't really use these terms top-down, bottom-up in the book, but this is just for clarifying here. So, for example, in the, in the case of Wiccans in Finland, they applied for the status of registered religious community. Then the <laughs> result was that they didn't get that through. But the decision was, was very contentious after, after the rejection. It went to the high court and... Uh, it's only case in Finland that has gone to high court when, it, when we talk about registrations. But the thing is that I, I look at why in the first place those Wiccans wanted to get the status. I mean, they were not standing in unison with each other that, yes, we all want that. That creates some disagreements within the group, for example. Some say that, okay, you do that if you want. We don't want to have anything to do with that. So the balance, power balance within that field itself changes. Then there's this very concrete process that government officials make the decision that whether, whether this group can be counted as religious. And, and um, as said, the, the decision was very contentious one and, and uh, they, they didn't get that. But what they were aiming at was not so much some concrete benefits one can get but more like acceptance or recognition from the rest of the society that they are not just a bunch of weirdos, but they are decent, moral, good people, good citizens. And that's also part of the, the relevance in these cases that, that media, media coverage is often in an important role in deciding those, those, not deciding those cases where the registrations go through, but, but deciding about the recognition whether they will get and what kind of coverage are given. And also within the field of Wiccans, such a coverage or such a recognition would also put the group that applies the status of registered religious community in a good position to represent Wiccans for the rest of the society. So this is an example we discuss a bit more in detail in, in a jointly written chapter with Susan Owen about the, the Druid Network in Britain that they began to sort of define druidry for all, although there are other quite important groups in Britain who define druidry in slightly different way, but are not necessarily contacted by the media in, in the same, same way anymore. So there are all those aspects one can highlight and focus on depending on the case. And in all those cases, I also talk about the role of scholars whenever they are involved. So, so that is quite interesting aspect as well. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of the scholar when it comes to how these approaches are applied, right? What is the position of the scholar and what's at stake in using these methods? Yes. Scholars who do discursive study of religion tend to highlight that scholars are never complete outsiders. They are always somehow participants in producing discourse about religion. But 
there are still differences in what kind of positions are available for scholars. And in those case studies I examine, it is quite clear that whenever scholars are involved, some take more this sort of what could be called activist position, in a sense that they want to speak on behalf of particular groups. We highlight that with Susan Owen quite clearly in the, in the chapter on Druid Network, where Graham Harvey wrote an expert statements in support of the application of, of the Druid Network. So that's a very clear example, but that's by no means the only example I give. There are other types of other ways to be involved than explicit statements or expert letters. But that's a very good example of this kind of activist who wants to help particular group to get some benefits from the society. And then there is this position I prefer, which is that I talk about these cases also in public, not just in, in scholarly publications, but uh, to media, for example, in Finland. And I highlight always that I'm not speaking on behalf of any of those communities or against them. I'm not saying that this particular group is a religious one or that it isn't. I try to highlight what is at stake when that kind of debate is going on, whether this group counts as a religion, religious or not. What kind of power structures are there? Who are the ones making those decisions and how they are applying their cultural understanding of what religion is? Because in law, religion is rarely defined in detail. Those definitions are very vague usually. Oh, yes. Yes. And what I think is really interesting in that book is the, is the chapter on Karhun Kansa, People of the Bear, from this point of view. Because I was strongly involved in media debate when that uh, case was still open. Okay. Because the, the, the group was rejected at first, that the, they are not getting the status of registered religious community, but they were able to put in the second application. And between those two rounds, I was quite strongly involved in, in media, talking about the whole registration process and so on. And then I highlighted quite strongly that I'm not speaking on behalf of this community or this group. But still, I think that in practice, my involvement probably helped the group to get the application through, although I cannot prove it clearly. But still, it is what, what I think and what my colleagues think that happened. So that case highlights nicely that even though when I take the position that I don't want to be involved, I'm still involved one way or another. But still, my position is very different from the activist position or, or what Russell McCutcheon might call caretaker position. Yeah, and I think that nicely demonstrates that the discursive approach is not one that positions itself as objective or disinterested in what's, you know, quote, really going on in the world. But all the same, there are a lot of critiques of this approach as doing just that. However, from what you're saying, it's more that this approach takes a step back to consider more of the structural issues and consequences at stake in how these terms and categories are applied. So how might you respond to a critique of this approach saying that no, it is the scholar's job to be actively involved in representing and speaking on behalf of religious groups, particularly in these moments of contest that you're considering throughout the book? Yeah, 
I'm, I'm not sure if it's fair to say that uh, discursive approach or people representing discursive approach are, this, are in the same position, but, but uh, if I just talk about how I position myself uh, by utilizing these, these tools, okay, sometimes some of my students say that that's the sort of weird position to take, that as a scholar, as a scholar you should be able to say what religion is and then defend certain groups on that basis and then suggest that other groups that don't fulfill the criteria should be rejected. Okay, then I simply try to convince students or anyone asking such questions that actually I'm not really interested in what, what religion is or what isn't. I'm interested more, more in, in how power relations operate in society, how they are structured and what people do by referring some having religion and I can't do that job properly if I take the side of, of a particular group and also in some cases that's not even helpful for the groups in some cases it definitely can be helpful for the groups but if I think about this this Karhun uh, Kansa people of the bear case let's imagine that I would have stated in the media that yes yes this is of course a religious group you should accept the application that wouldn't have been interesting point of view to the discussion. But when I said something like, okay, let's look at the whole system we have. It looks like people uh, representing the dominant church in Finland are making the decision on quite vague basis that there's something fishy about this whole structure or this system. Then people started to be interested in this, that, okay, now we may have something to talk. For example, if I, if I compare this to the earlier case, the Wiccans in Finland, uh, Wiccans tried to say that, okay, you should ask scholars of religion, expert statements, whether Wiccans count as, as religious group or not, because they knew that some scholars studied Wiccans in the um, study of religion. So, but that was pretty much ignored that, okay, we don't, we don't need that. Kind of statement from anyone because we just follow what law says about whether this counts as religious or not. But in when I when I talked about the system and and the weakness and and some kind of Protestant Lutheran emphasis of the structure and also people involved, then it was interesting from the point of view of media to to maintain that debate for a little bit longer up to a point that uh, the minister minister of the interior responded twice in public for, for these, they weren't really ac accusations, but these, these uh, critiques. There were other reasons why media was interested in this, mainly because the, the Minister of the Interior was known to be a conservative Christian. So more liberal media wanted to pick that up and highlight that, uh, okay, now we can say something critical about this, this uh, person, but uh, still, that was the way to, to do it, that, that I focused more on, the, on other issues than, than whether this group is religious or not. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So you just mentioned with your students how they have certain expectations when they come into a religious studies course, how you, their professor, perhaps ought to engage with certain groups, particularly when it comes to talking about what is or isn't religious. 
For those who want to incorporate more discursive approaches or at least some conversations about how these groups use the category of religion, what would you suggest to them for bringing that conversation into the classroom, even at just a very simple level, particularly for those who might not be as familiar with or as comfortable with these approaches? I think that in in general, whatever approach we we prefer, if we want want to um, make it known for others, if we want that people people start developing it, applying it, we need to have some way to do it in the classroom. And obviously, if people have a lot of options to choose what they teach, they can do their favorite approach. For example, just as we as we speak earlier today, we started a reading group concerning discursive study of religion in my my university, and that's that's one way to do it. But many of us are in a situation where there are some structures that we cannot change, at least not not immediately, and there are still opportunities to incorporate these approaches in the classroom, and and I've used world religions courses as an example i've been teaching such courses quite a long time in 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 uh, different universities and and even at the university of helsinki in different settings in different programs one uh, international ma program and and one uh, finnish language uh, program on 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 a bachelor level so different contexts but in each case i've been able to incorporate at least some of these ideas into the structure so that I haven't really made a revolution in how to run that kind of course. But every time I've spent quite a good time in discussing how particular traditions we usually examine in in world religions courses have been started to classify as religious. Like when that happens in history, in which context? And, and what are the local terms used? And so, so there are several great studies about those processes. For example, how Shinto became to, to be a religion in Japan. There are, there are short articles, substantial book-length studies, and almost everything in between. So there are resources, and I address those resources in that chapter, but also also practical ways in how I've done the teaching and what kind of exercises and examples I've, I've used and whether they work or not in my case. And it is interesting in a sense that, for example, the most students who participate to such courses and, and want to know something about Judaism, they are not really expecting me to talk about 19th century Persia and, and European context where Judaism came to be labeled as a religion. So that's not the only thing I do, but those kinds of bits and pieces that one can include in their courses will make them think more carefully about the classification processes. And after the course, they are, they are not simply think that, okay, there are five big world religions in the world and, and um, they just, they've been, been like that throughout the history. So even though I'm not necessarily starting or developing the course from the beginning to the end, consistently within the discursive study of religion framework, I add some bits there, even though part of the course may be quite traditional and even conservative. 
So I'm more like thinking about not as a revolutionary, but reformist here, that even if you can include a little bit, that may lead to something in the long run, long run. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really great way to start incorporating discursive approaches into the classroom, right? Looking at how different categories are being negotiated and contested by different social groups to see what's at stake and those moments of contest, those issues that come up, because there's a lot to work with there. And in doing so, it'll also help students to potentially rethink ideas that they may previously have taken for granted. I realize we're starting to run short on time, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about where discursive approaches sort of fit within the field of religious studies. By some accounts, they are quite prevalent and systemic, but by others, not so much. So could you say a little about where and how these approaches fit within the field of religious studies? Also, do you have any thoughts or ideas about how we can further develop these approaches and move forward in the field? Yeah, it is interesting that some people think that these types of approaches, I think it's best to talk in plural about approaches rather than one approach, uh, yes. are somehow dominant. They are not. They are not. It, it is actually a relatively small group of people who, who do that. It's not completely marginal either, but it's, it's not uh, representative of what is done in the field of study of religion in general. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this is just a, a side note. What I think is relevant, if I think about the question you just posed, I'm not completely comfortable in thinking at the moment about what, what are the best ways forward, what should be done next. Obviously, at the end of the book, I discuss different approaches. Some of those are more like uh, critics of discursive study. Some are what I call potential allies in going forward. And this choice should at least highlight that, that I think that debating with other approaches, understanding what other, other related approaches are doing, what are their strengths and weaknesses, how they characterize discursive study and how we might respond to them. That kind of scholarly debate is crucial. And, and in that chapter, I wanted to pick up a couple of issues I found interesting or issues I was frustrated with uh, hearing again and again or repeatedly by, by critics and even pointing out some problems those critics have in their own approach. But this is just part of the thing we should do. And I think still overall, what I wanted to say with this book is that okay, this is how I've done these case studies. With these uh, methods, I've used some of them, applied some uh, tools and concepts more than others. This is what I've been able to do. Now it's your turn to decide whether any of this is helpful for you. And you can decide where you want to go with them, whether you want to utilize them or not at all. So, so in that sense, my aim has been to try to be inspirational. I don't like this word, but the, the, <laughs> point, the point is that, that it's not about saying that do exactly what I've done, but this is something, this is an opening 
let's see if you can carry it forward somewhere mm -hmm. else, probably. So because of that, I'm not fully comfortable in, in stating myself what people should do next. Sure. And part of what I wondered in that question, as you mentioned, is are there certain limits to these approaches that we need to be cognizant of and how might we go about factoring that in in applying discursive methods? Yeah, in a, in a sense, I've, I've never been evangelical about any approach. <laughs> so I've tried to learn different approaches, utilize different approaches. Of course, I have my preferences. We all have. Oh, yeah. And in this book, I try to follow consistently the idea that I don't define religion at all in this book. I'm not arguing that people shouldn't define religion in any approach. But I've just consistently followed the idea here. And now it's there for everyone to see whether that's something they find useful. Mm -hmm. No, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, because it, it really allows people to kind of sit with the ideas that you put forward and, and sort of think through the, the process of this using these approaches and see how it applies to their own work, their interests, you know, the interests that they bring to their own research. So I think in that sense, it's, it's very productive because it definitely, it, it creates a, a way in for those who might be interested in the, you know, these approaches or who have not been as familiar with it because maybe they're only familiar with critiques of it and help maybe create a little bit more understanding about what is, you know, what this work is, is doing um, or at least, at least in this particular way, knowing that there are many ways to go about doing discourse analysis in in the study of religion. So I hope, you know, hopefully that will, you know, people will be able to see that and see how they can apply it. But before we wrap up, I will, of course, ask, as as we often do, what you're working on now, what projects are on the horizon for you? Anything coming out in the near future that we can keep an eye out for? I'm writing articles all the time so quite a lot of articles have been recently published and will be published in the future the bigger projects what i could say um i think later this year an edited volume atheism in five minutes should be out so that highlights my and some of my colleagues work in that area and uh, i actually hope to, to write a bit more substantially about atheism in in media news media media culture even oh. popular culture in the in the future so that's what i'm thinking um, as more of a long term but we'll see we'll see i i'm not uh, tied to any of those projects that are further on the horizon so so i may i may change if i get better ideas <laughs> that's fair that's fair well just as a reminder for everybody listening, the book that we are discussing today is Taking Religion Seriously, Essays on the Discursive Study of Religion, and it was published with Brill in 2022. So thank you again to Dr. Tammy Tyra for joining me here today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. Yeah, thanks a lot. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. 
Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram and other portals. Thanks for listening.